that better? So if I asked you to give a short, concise confession of what God is like, what would you say? I'm sure most of us would be able to give an answer to that. How about something like this? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Isaiah 6, verse 3. Or how about, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. From Revelation 4, verse 8. You see, what those statements are saying is that God is different, different, different than anything else. That God is greater, greater, greater than anything else. Holy, holy, holy. Separate, separate, separate. In other words, that there's no one like Him. That God is in a category all to Himself. This also means that you can't really describe God by comparing Him to anything that we know. You see, God is the only one who is outside of creation. And so there is no way you could possibly describe him by comparing him to what we know. Because he is holy, holy, holy. He is the other. And he is the only truly supreme God. Now did you know that idolatry is the exact opposite of that confession? Idolatry is the exact opposite of the true confession of who God is. Idolatry is to turn away from the true God and to erect something in His place. It is to create a man-made God and attempt to put Him in the place of God. In other words, and think about this, because sometimes we don't get the connection to our real lives of what idolatry is. We think it's some far away. Idolatry is failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And to love something else in His place. That's what idolatry is. And this is why Paul could call idolatry greed. Uh, Greed is simply erecting an idol out of something or anything outside of God and loving it and cherishing it and worshiping it in His place. It is really simply, you might say, unbelief. And so my point is that idolatry stands in direct opposition to that confession of who God is. So let me ask you a question. Why do we often confess the truth of God so well, but live it so poorly? Why do we so easily come to church and sing the songs and confess the truth about God with our words, but then live our lives living as if we were practical idolaters throughout our week? 
Why do we confess the truth about God with our lips and erect idols in our hearts and in our lives? Why is idolatry so much alive even in the church today? The answer is obvious. It's not a mystery. It's what it's always been. And the reason we struggle with idolatry, even as believers, is because we easily forget God. You might call it spiritual amnesia. We forget our God. And what I mean by forget, because you might wonder, what do you mean by forget? I don't forget who God is. We forget that God is the supreme, glorious treasure in the universe. We forget that there is no one like God. That He is worthy and demands rightfully to be seen by his creatures as the most glorious treasure in the universe. To be loved above all things because he is supremely lovely. Because he is supremely glorious. And there is no one as valuable as he is. Or as great of a treasure. And so we exchange him for other things. We see other things as more valuable. Other things as a greater treasure. Other things as more lovely than him. And that's what idolatry is. There's always something at the center of our lives. There's always something we love supremely. There's always something that we treat as God. Our flesh longs for idols. Did you know that? Idols are so easy. We can control them. We can, we can, we can, they can, we can control them to do whatever we want them to do. We can make them whatever we want to make them. They're easy. It requires nothing of us. And the world is working hard to sell them to you. There is a huge market outside. And this has been going on since the Garden of Eden. God's people in Babylon were facing a very similar situation to us. It was very easy for them to forget God. The idols looked very tempting. And the world was eager to sell them. You see, living in a foreign land, there were... Idols everywhere. They were everywhere. Not only that, but it appeared like the idols were working. I mean, who were the captors here? <laughs> who were the ones who were enslaved? And so it would have appeared from outward, everything outward appearance would have said that the God of Israel could not deliver his people. And so they would have been trying to sell their God, <laughs> their gods that would have been all over the place. And it would have been easy for God's people to forget the true and living God. So what does God do for such people in this situation? What does he do? How does God love us? How does God care for us? Well, what he does is what he does here. He reminds us of who he is. He reminds us that he is for us. He is for his people. And he reminds them of the insanity of idolatry. That's what God does in this passage. He says, I am great. There is no one like me. And I am for my people. And idolatry is utterly insane. And those who practice it are insane as well. God loves his people here first by reminding them of how great God is. And that he is for them. And for us who confess God and easily forget, this is for you. 
This is for you who confess God but easily forget. This is for you and this is for me. We need to be reminded of this. And we see this in verses 6 through 8. Listen to how God identifies himself in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. How does God want to be known? How does he identify himself? Well, first he says, I am your king. I am the king of Israel. Now, we all know that there are many kings of Israel, right? We all know that there are many kings throughout time. But there's only one who is the king of kings and who is the Lord of lords. And he rules for the good of his people. God says, I am also your redeemer. Now, we, we have to remember that we are in a pitiful state. Right? That man is in a hopeless, pitiful condition. That we are enslaved to sin. And we cannot free ourselves. We don't want to free ourselves. And God says, I am your Redeemer. I am the one who purchases you. I'm the one who buys you out of your slavery, out of your pitiful condition. No one else can do that. I am your Redeemer. And I make you my sons and daughters. You are mine. You read that last week. You are mine. Or two weeks ago. <laughs> and a picture of this is God redeeming his people from Egypt and God redeeming his people from Babylon. Those are pictures of a greater redemption that God does through Christ Jesus in delivering us finally, once and for all, from our sin. That's the greatest redemption. God says, I am also the Lord of hosts. And what that means, that means he's the Lord of armies. And so we know there are many great army leaders throughout time. But there is no one as great as God. God is over them all. And he has showed himself strong many times in behalf of his people. God is the one who defeats the enemy of his people over and over and over again. And finally, God says, I am the first and the last. I am before all things. I was here at the beginning. I continue with all things, directing and guiding all things. And I will be here for eternity. I will never end. I continue on forever. That's what God is saying here. In other words, God stands outside of time. Everything else stands inside of time. And this is why Jesus claimed what he did about himself. Remember, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And actually, he applied these terms to himself four times in Revelation. And what does that tell us about who Jesus is? It tells us that Jesus is the Almighty God. The main point God makes here is that there is no one like him. No one is in his category. He is in a category all to himself. He is greater than all. It is not only that he is greater than all other gods. He is the only God. And that's an important concept to understand. But notice how God makes this point here. I want, us to, I want to call your attention to how does God show his greatness? Well, he does it by explaining how he relates savingly to his people. 
Do you notice that almost every statement there is a statement that relates to how God savingly relates to his people? That's how God shows us how great he is. If you want to see how great God is, you have to understand how he relates savingly to his people. And that's how God shows us, I am greater than all. There is no one like me. So what about the competition? God reinforces how great he is here, that he is the only God, by challenging any other so-called gods to a competition. The competition is to see who is truly the greatest of all. Who is the true God? Is there anyone like him? In verse 7. Listen to what we read. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Remember Muhammad Ali, the great boxer? He used to say over and over again, I am the greatest, I am the greatest. Well, how great really was he? Right? His greatness was limited to boxing. And how great can you be, even if you're the greatest boxer in the world? And his greatness died with him, didn't it? He was limited. He lived a short time, and he was dead. And even boxing is not even all that great, when you think about it. And if you look at the chronologies in, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, you look at someone lived and they died, lived and they died, lived and they died. You know, that's reminding us over and over again of the greatness of man. You know? The greatest we can do is live a few years, then we die. It's a great reminder of how limited we are. It reminds us that none of us are God. We are not like God at all. And then, notice that what God says. God is so confident that he's truly greatest of all that he backs it up with a challenge. He says, I am willing to challenge anyone to prove that there is no one like me. And so that's what he says. He challenges anyone. Come forward if you are like me. Come forward if you are God like I am God. And what is the criteria for being God? What are the qualifications? Well, God gives them here, doesn't he? He says you have to be able to explain the flow of history. You have to be able to explain what is behind history, what is going on behind history. And notice, if you were to explain the point of history, where it's going, how everything is headed, you would have to be able to say that God is working everything out for his glory. <laughs> That would be the answer there. But not only that, not only do you have to be able to explain history, but you also have to be able to tell the future before it happens. You have to be able to explain what's going to happen in history before it happens. And then you have to bring it to pass. So how would you compare with God if you were to take up his challenge? You know, James 4 verse 14 is so humbling to us. It says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. How much less any aspect of the future events that are going to come to pass. We are so limited. We are locked in the constraints of time and space. But God is not. But God is not. So is God really concerned even one bit that someone might come forward and show themselves to be comparable to him? And the answer is no, not at all. God is just showing us his greatness. That's what he's doing. He's showing us that no one can even approach his greatness. In fact, the next few verses we'll look at next week, God is going to foretell, prophesy the, the coming of Cyrus by name over a hundred years before he would even be born. 
that is amazing. But I will restrain myself and we will keep it for next week. So what does this mean for God's people? That he is the only God. What does it mean? Is this good news for the church today? Is this encouraging to us? Well, listen to verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Think about this for a minute. God is your king. He is your redeemer. He is the eternal one. No beginning and no end. If your God has history in his hands and predicts the future, and if he is for you and has declared that he's going to save you, then what is there to fear? There is no sense of fearing if this is your God. There's absolutely nothing to fear. And the character of God is the ultimate assurance of God's people. Think about that. The character of God is the ultimate assurance of God's people that we have nothing to fear. You know, someone said it something like this. Imagine if someone, if you, if you were in great debt, if you were in servitude, and you couldn't get yourself out, and someone gave you a check of a, a million dollars, well over what you need. And, uh, and so you looked at this check, and you had to determine whether it even try to cash it, <laughs> you know? What would you think? Well, is this person truly generous? And do they have the resources? Well, the truth is, God is not just generous, but he has all the resources. He is God. And that's why you should be encouraged when you hear these words. And you should worship your God. Did you know, according to Ephesians 2, verse 7, that God is determined to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us for eternity? Did you know that? God's purpose is that he is determined to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards his people for eternity. He's going to show off to his people how much he has and benefit towards you throughout eternity. He can do this and he will do this because he's God. On top of this, consider the reason God is determined to save you. Consider the reason. Why is God determined to save you? Well, what does it say here? It says here that he's determined to save you in order to make you a witness about who he is. You are his witness. You see, God predicted that he would save you in advance. And by power, he brings it to pass. God predetermined to save you. Just as he predetermined to save Israel, he predetermined to save his people. And he brings it to pass in order to show his power and his greatness. And God saved Israel to show the world that he is the one and only true God. And notice that God determined to save you. At a time and place, he saved you. And right now, he is changing you if you're his and he is going to one day glorify you. And why, what is undermining all of that? Why is he doing all that? To witness to the truth of who he is as God. You are witnesses simply by the fact 
that you are being saved. Did you know that? Even without saying a word, and yes, we are to say a word. Yes, we're to proclaim the truth of who God is. But right there it's saying you are his witnesses simply by the fact that God is saving you. That there is no one like him. Do you know what this means? This means that there is so much more at stake in your being saved than your well-being. It means that the degree of your wickedness that God is saving you from is not going to hamper God saving you, but is going to show more the power of God in saving you. God's identity, his great name, his reputation is at stake in saving his people. And God is determined to show the world that there is no one like him, that there is no rock like our God. That he is unmovable, that he is firm, and that he is strong. Is this your God? This is your God, then all fear is illogical. In fact, we should be courageous, fearless witnesses to the truth of who God is. God also loves you by reminding you of the utter absurdity of idolatry. Now this is comical. I want you to understand this is, this is really a comical way that God puts this forward. He shows us the insanity of idolatry in verses 9 through 20. And I want us to see that in contrast to the rightness or the sanity of worshiping God because of his greatness in verses 6 through 8. And imagine the, the circus music beginning. This is the greatest show on earth. This is comical. So God gives us an author- his authoritative evaluation of idolatry to show how insane it is in verses 9 through 11. When I collected baseball cards, I thought I was finding something valuable and turns out I wasted a lot of money as a kid. And uh, they used to have these resources that would tell us it was the authoritative um, price checker on the value of baseball cards. And so here is the authoritative source on the value of idolatry in verses 9 through 11. So imagine you're, you're, you have your idol, you're coming before your appraiser, he is God, he's going to evaluate it for you. You've worked a lot, you've worked a long time on this, you've worked hard on it. And this is what you've come up with. What does God have to say about the value of your idol? Well, God first evaluates the idolater. And he's the idolater himself who makes the idol. And he says, the idolater is nothing. That's what he says. Well, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? How can you say that? How can you say the idolater is nothing? But when you make nothing and claim that it is something, perhaps that is a reflection of you. Then God evaluates the idol. What does he have to say about idols themselves? He says they are of no profit, they're of no value, they are worthless. And so once again, you might say, that's kind of harsh. I mean, the idolater spent a lot of time making his idol. He put a lot of effort into it. He spent a lot of money on it, probably. But when the value of an idol is its God-likeness, I guess worthless is appropriate. So is this the final word on idolatry? Is it just neutral? Is it of no benefit? Does it have no value? Well, the answer is no. It actually brings shame to the idolater. It brings condemnation. We know that that means judgment. It is not just nothing, worthless. You come out with nothing at the end. It actually shames and brings judgment on the one who worships the idol. 
It will bring eternal condemnation on those who exchange God for worthless idols. It will bring terror and judgment to you. And the question is, why? Why is it this big of a deal? Because if the benefit of idolatry is its ability to save you, it cannot save you. And if the benefit of idolatry is its ability to represent God, then it is a great shame for the idolater. And it is dishonoring to God to compare him to worthless things. And it will bring the idolater under God's judgment, rightfully so. And the greatness of our punishment is determined by the greatness of the one to whom we've sinned against. And the punishment is eternally great. And this is not an isolated evaluation of the outcome of a particular sad case of idolatry. Notice the word all three different times in verse 9, in verse 11, and again in verse 11. All, all, all. This is always the case. There are no exceptions of it. So what is the final evaluation? After crunching the numbers, the final authoritative evaluation of idolatry is that it's not only nothing, it's not only worthless, it actually brings you under judgment. Idolatry is shameful. God then explains how idols are constructed in order to expose the utter insanity of idolatry. It is as if God takes us behind the scenes to the craftsman of the idol. Here is the iron worker and the woodsmith making their idols, and we are given a behind-the-scenes glimpse of idol-making so we can understand the greatest conspiracy ever. God first brings us to the ironsmith who is constructing an idol out of iron in verse 12. And notice that there is something similar to God in the idol maker. There's one little thing similar. They're both constructing something, right? And they're both actually said to have a strong arm. And I think the, the strong arm of the iron worker is comical. I think God is saying that in a funny way. He says he has a strong arm. God obviously does have a strong arm. But notice what he says, how unlike the iron worker is when it comes to God. He uses pre-existing material to, material to make his idol with. Not only that, but he becomes faint. He needs food and nourishment. He needs water to keep himself sustained. Or he will not make it. Or he will die. And what is the best result you could expect from such a limited creature? How different is our God than the idol maker? He doesn't use pre-existing material. He creates things out of nothing. Not only that, but he never grows faint or weary. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Not only that, but those who worship him will constantly be renewed in their strength. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Isaiah 40, verse 31. There is no greater contrast than the idol maker and his idol versus God. Then God brings us to the woodworker who makes an idol out of wood, in verses 13 through 17. We are brought to the inner room the, where, the, where the idol is actually designed. And we are brought into the, you might call it the backstage pass, to watch this idol maker doing his thing. Right? How exciting. Let's find out what is put into this God. All right? The idol comes from, or is birthed from, the human mind. Wow. 
He traces, shapes, and marks it so that it fits the plans he has imagined. He has put himself all in it in order to make it beautiful. And what will a God of our imagination look like? Well, it will look like us 100% of the time. Or it will look ugly. One or the other. Lo and behold, surprisingly, it's made in the shape of man. The pinnacle of God's creation is the way our idols are formed and shaped to look like. What we see here is both arrogance and stupidity at work in their finest. What I think of is I think of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz when she went to the Emerald City and she's expecting the emperor there to be something great and amazing and she finds out that he is a human just like her. (laughs) She needed something bigger and greater than her. But it turns out he can do very little to help her. It's not what she was expecting. So, let's continue on and see what he does. He has to find a house for his idol, doesn't he? He has to find something to put it under, to protect the idol from the elements. And so what does he do? He, he puts it in the house. He, he finds a house for it so that it doesn't get destroyed by the elements. Then we are suddenly transported way back to the seeding of the tree, to where it began, right? And we are told that the rain comes down and causes it to grow. And who causes the rain to come to the ground? It, it's God, isn't it? Isn't that ir- ironical? <laughs> that it's, isn't that ironic, I should say? That God is the one who brings the rain and causes it to grow. Then the carpenter goes into the forest to cut down a tree. He chops down a tree that he thinks is fitting. But it's way too big, isn't it? And so what does he do with the leftover materials? He burns some of it in a fire to keep himself warm. And the rest of it, he builds and makes food out of. He uses it for fire to make food. Well, that's nice, isn't it? But then notice the absurdity of what he does with the rest of the wood. He takes the leftover pieces and he begs it to save him. That makes no sense at all. He falls down to it and worships it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Can you do this and be right in the head? The answer is no. This is insane. This is ridiculous. This is what an insane asylum is made for. Idolatry is utterly insane, no matter what you make your idol from. Whether it's iron, whether it's wood, whether it's a planet... Whether it's whipped cream, it's utter insanity. It makes no sense. God concludes his assessment of idolatry with a disturbing evaluation of the spiritual condition of the idol worshiper in verses 18 through 20. So you might ask, why can an idol maker not see through to his insanity? Well, what does it say here? And these are, these are some surprising words. It says here that God judicially shuts his eyes. He makes him blind and insensitive. It says God shuts his eyes. And someone said something like this, which I think is very helpful. It's not like God, we have to understand what he's saying here. It's not like God takes 20 innocent people, right? And 15 of them he closes his eyes and 5 of them he opens. That is the wrong way of understanding what's going on here. You see, we are all born sinners. 
We do not acknowledge God. We do not want to acknowledge God. The 20 people here are all sinners and have no interest in God and have no desire for God. Idolatry actually begins with rebelling against God's name. With rebelling against God. If you read Romans chapter 1, idolatry is the failure to honor God as God. It begins with a willful rejection of God. And when we get God wrong, we get everything else wrong. And God blinds people who want to be blind in their hearts. And that's really all of us. It is not only that he can't leave his idols, but he won't leave them. You see, he loves being in control. He loves what he can get with his idols. He does not love God. And it's God's grace that any of our eyes are opened. Imagine that. Imagine here we are. God reaches down into hearts that love idolatry, that treasure idolatry, who have no thought of the greatness and the glory and the, and, and, and the, and, and the, and the, and the awesome majesty of God. He sees no beauty in God, and he changes our hearts. And he gives us a taste and a love for what is of infinite worth and what of his infinite greatness. Praise God for his amazing grace. That's what faith is, by the way. God opening our eyes to see him and who he truly is. The idol worshiper might be blind, but he's not ignorant. Notice it's not a mistake. It says here, shall I make the rest of it an abomination? And I was trying to think of what this is kind of like. Um, what this is saying is he's not ignorant, that he does it on purpose, that this is what he wants. And it's kind of like a huge, huge tree going way up in the sky. And, and so you climb this tree, and there's like one branch at the very top, and that branch is really thin, and it's dead, completely dead. And so you climb out, and you know it's dead. Everyone says it's dead. It makes no sense to climb out on it, but you do it anyway because that's what you want to do. You want this branch to save you, and so you climb out on it. It makes absolutely no sense, but that's what idolatry is like. And the benefit we gain from idolatry is described as feeding on ashes. Feeding on ashes. You know, this is a contrasting word. It's used in another sense for the kingdom of God in the, in the lush um, banquet that we have in Christ. We feed on the banquet that we have in the kingdom of God. But what does the idolater have? What does the false worshiper have? All he has to feed on are the ashes of his idol. That's all he gets. That's all he gets. So how are we to respond? If there's one God and there's no one else like him, if he is for us, if he is for his people, and if idols are the essence of insanity, how should we respond? That's what verse 21 through 23 tells us. The right, right response is to remember your God. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. What are the things we are to remember? That God has made you his servant. If you're a servant today, it's because God has formed you into a servant. God has made you his servant. Praise God for his amazing grace. What are we to read to remember? We are to remember what God has done in blotting out our transgressions. God is the one, like a mist or a cloud, he takes them away. This is an aspect of redemption, where God, um, where God redeems us and purchases us and buys us and delivers us from our sin, blots out our transgression. How amazing is that? Our greatest problem in the world 
is our sin. There is no greater problem than that. And that's what God deals with in saving us. Remember this. When you, as God's people, remember God, the right response is to return to God. And that's what you will do if you truly remember Him. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And return to me simply means to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent is the turning away from your sin. It's the negative aspect of it. Believing is turning towards God. They're the same thing, just different ways of looking at it, right? Repent and believe. Turn towards God. Turn from your idolatry and turn towards God. And it makes no sense to do anything else when we remember who God is. Notice on what basis his people should repent and turn. Notice the basis for repenting and turning is that God has redeemed you. God has purchased you. God has bought you. Therefore, repent and return to God. This means repentance is motivated by God's grace. The grace of God is what provokes us to repentance. We love Him because He first loved us. Repent is such a bad word in our day, isn't it? Repentance has become this negative word. I I try to tell my kids whenever I can, repentance is a good thing. We want to repent. Daddy needs to repent over and over and over again. The life of faith, the life of faithfulness to God is a life of continual repentance as I'm reminded of my God and and I, I turn away from forgetting Him, from replacing Him with other things and repent towards towards God and run towards Him and cherish Him. And love him more. That is a good thing. That's the only path for joy. For true and authentic joy. So the right response to God's redeeming of his people is for creation to sing songs of praise to God. And that's what we see in verse 23. And notice, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. What causes the greatest rejoicing ever? What is the one thing out of all, in all the universe, throughout history and throughout time, that can cause the greatest rejoicing to God? There is only one thing that can do that, and that is redemption. That is the one thing that can provoke the greatest praise to God in the history of the universe. And that is God redeeming his people. And notice that all of creation does what it's supposed to do here. This is what it's supposed to do. You know, when you think about it, Idolatry makes no sense whatsoever. And it's amazing that the pinnacle of God's creation would be the ones engaging in idolatry. But yet here what we see is all creation responds exactly the way God created them to make. From the heights of the heavens to the depths of the earth. And notice the trees were not made to be objects of worship. They were made to be worshipers of God. There's only one thing that should that could possibly cause such cosmic singing to break out. And that's redemption. You know, one day all of creation will be liberated with us, right? From bondage to sin and decay, and we'll praise and worship God. If you're in Christ, you sing loudly because you have been redeemed. The payment has been made. You're His, so let's sing. Let's not act like insane people. Let us act like people who are sane. Let us worship God. Let us praise His name. For that is why we exist and that is why we are here. So you are a worshiper. Either you're a sane worshiper of God or an insane worshiper of idols. You are one or the other. Idol worship is the 
true condition of insanity. So what are we to do? Well, John, in his short letter, wrote to the church what they are to be about doing in 1 John 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That just tells us that it is a temptation for us. And it's all around us. So how are we to go about doing this? Let me summarize real quickly as we conclude. Remember your God. Remember your God. Remember in particular that he has redeemed you. Only then will God look fittingly glorious to you. And this alone will compel the rivers of praise to flow from your heart. This this will unleash the rivers of praise to God. Idolatry cannot hold a heart back that is filled with praise and adoration to God. Idols will not be able to stop a worshiper from worshiping God when he remembers and sees God for who he truly is. Remember God in his work. Return to him and praise him. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, you are the Almighty God. Lord, we want to confess that there is no one like you. Lord, that you stand outside of creation, that you are holy, 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 and that the whole earth is filled with your glory. You are the one who is and who was and who is to come. Lord, and what can we say but thank you, God. Thank you that though we were dead in our sins, even though we were following after every idol, even though we were loving everything that is not lovely, that you by your grace and your mercy have reached down and given us eyes to see you. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us, even this week, Lord, for loving other things in your place. Lord, we need your grace and your mercy. I pray that we would return to you. I pray that we would praise you as you so rightly deserve. I pray that if there are any in here who have been blind, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes up. I pray that you would bring repentance and salvation to this very room, this very moment. God, may you save us from our insanity. May you deliver us from your judgment. And may you bring us safely into your kingdom. And Lord, I thank you that you are a powerful God and mighty to save. Even right now, you can save us, Lord, from judgment to your kingdom. And Lord, thank you for your great name. Thank you for dying for us on the cross and for rising from the dead and for giving us life. In Jesus' name, amen.